Austin. I guess I should say my last name. I am the only Austin. I am the composer Austin. Uh, Austin Wintry. We're here in my studio. I'm with Kaya and we're doing All Access. And um, I hope it's interesting. We're gonna talk today about a game that as of this taping, I'm not allowed to talk about, but through the magic of delayed releases, this uh, will be known as Erica, and it should hopefully be interesting. It's a very atypical kind of game. All right, awesome. Well, thank you so much for inviting me back to your studio. So great to chat again. Thank you for, for coming back. <laughs> well, uh, for anyone who uh, has not uh, watched, we did a, a really great uh, All Access episode a few years ago. Um, we delved into a lot of things then, so if you haven't seen that, definitely uh, check that out. But just to kind of refresh our memory of your, um, what I always like to call your kind of origin story and your kind of path yes. to becoming a composer, can you tell us, kind of go back to those early memories you had, and what was that kind of first spark you had of when music started really making an impact in your life, and then kind of when did you decide to take this as a career path? It, so for me, it was a very unusual thing because I had no music at all until suddenly it was what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't listen to albums. I didn't have a favorite band. I didn't listen to classical music. I definitely didn't know anything about soundtrack albums, although I was obsessed with Star Wars, which has clearly not changed much. Right. My coffee mug, uh, <laughs> and it's not lost on me, the hat I'm wearing. Um, <laughs> but uh, So I had like the, the LP of the original, you know, A New Hope uh, soundtrack, but I, but I couldn't have told you the name John Williams. I right. just knew it as Star Wars music. It yeah. was an extension of my love of Star Wars. It wasn't anything to do with a love of music in its own right. But then what happened was when I was about 10, my father made this very peculiar deal with me to learn uh, Beethoven's Fur Elise on the piano, and in exchange I would get his childhood air rifle. Uh, which we had found in his mother's basement in Arkansas. And this thing is like a real rifle. It would never be legal today for a child. I mean, it shoots BBs, but it's like compressed air. And yeah, yeah. You could definitely put someone's eye out, kid. And so he, uh, but in a weird sort of piece of parenting jujitsu, he said, if you can play Beethoven's for Elise, you can have this weapon. And um, I had never touched a piano. I mean, I had I had started to... I was big into movies, as big into video games and things like that, and I, I had started to kind of poke at the piano and realize that I could sound out, you know, the melodies um, on the piano. I, I didn't know any composer names or anything. Again, right. it was still just like this is the theme that was to the same with me. Indiana I was like, Jones. I like these musics, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They were, they, and in my, in my mind, it's like they're on set and the camera's rolling and the music's just somehow embedding right. onto the film yeah. while they're shooting. Right. I, I had no conception of any of that, and so. Uh, had to go get a piano teacher because I was like, well, this is clearly the deal we got to make. I can, I actually, funny enough, recently got out of storage and it's just in my closet. I can show you the air rifle. Oh my God. Um, I have it here. That's amazing. And uh, this thing is, this thing is like 60 years old. Um, and so, uh, so I, I, um, I got it. I, I got, or I rather, I got a piano teacher to help me in this quest. Mm. And we, you know, slogged our way through it, and I very quickly, you know, did whatever it took to learn this piece. And so I didn't go into sheet music, I didn't go into theory, I didn't go into even basic piano technique like scales and all the, you know, exercises. I just said, play for Elise, and I will imitate you until I can do it. And so two or three lessons later, I could do it because wow. I, I had no idea what I was doing. It was just muscle memory, right? Yeah, yeah. So I, but I get the thing, but that was the moment where it was like, 
actually, this is, like, I get the air rifle, it's all well and good, but then it's like, I keep looking back over at the piano and going, huh. So, go to this piano teacher and said, I actually would love to keep, because he was like, this was the weirdest thing he'd ever had as a piano student. <laughs> like, he just said, I don't know what's going on here. And so, a after those few weeks, he said, um, do you want to keep learning? And I said, actually, yeah, this is really cool, but I have no idea. Or, and then he asked, what do you want to learn? Because he, he was a great teacher. He was not one of those types that said, this is how you learn piano. Yeah. You're going to play these scales. You must learn this piece, then that piece. And he was, you know, he's this jazz cat. He had, he had been a ghostwriter on like Barnaby Jones and the streets of oh, San Francisco wow. back then. And he's, he's like the Alf Clausen type composer. He's yeah, this yeah. like jazz soul, you know, he could write <laughs> for eight piece or 18 piece big band, you know, like nobody's business. Yeah. And, uh, but he, you know, he was a gigging pianist, so he can play every pop song from every era, just the, you walk up, throw a dollar in the hat and say, let me hear Sinatra this or Katy Perry that and he'll, and everything in between and he'll, and he'll nail it. And so he was like, I'll teach you whatever you want to learn. It's all mm -hmm. the same to me. Yeah. And I, but he was a composer. And, right. and, and, uh, and so I said, I don't know what to learn. So he shows up the next week with a stack of Jerry Goldsmith LPs and said, well, let me play my favorite stuff. Although, funny enough, deep cut trivia, his favorite composer of all time was Leith Stevens, who is most well known for um, um, The Wild Ones, a Marlon Brando, wow. um, is it Marlon Brando? Uh, like, kind of like, um, what's that uh, motorcycle, um, uh, uh, Sons of Anarchy. It's almost yeah, like a movie, yeah. it's like a 50s movie of that, but there was also a, um, the, uh, the uh, War of the Worlds, uh, and Destination Moon, and a few of these sort of cult sci-fi films of that era that he did. Very random piece of, I was like, Leith Steve, it took me forever to even find any of this guy's music. Sadly, wow. it's mostly long gone. But he was quite the Jerry Goldsmith fanatic, and bringing me those LPs, uh, particularly Patton and A Patch oh, of Blue, yeah. um, I just instantly went from never having thought about that to thinking, I can't believe that this is how someone makes a living. You know, Jerry was alive then and still writing scores. So I very yeah. quickly was like, well, what is he doing now? And it was like, well, at any given moment, there was a movie in theaters. You know, this was the early 90s. So yeah. Jerry had like 40 movies a year right. at, uh, at those days. And um, so, yeah, it was just instant, instant conversion. And everything from that point forward became, how do I do this? Right. How do I learn everything I can about this? How do I, you know, start consuming? I became an early adopter of... Lucas Kendall's uh, <laughs> Film Score Monthly, and it became like my Bible when it would yeah. show up. Uh, uh, and, 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 and in parallel to that, you know, I was also subscribing to like, you know, Electronic Gaming Monthly and, <laughs> and the Star Wars Insider Magazine. And so it was just a general sort of sponge for, yeah. for nerdiness and pop culture and science, science, Scientific American, that kind of stuff. So it, was, it, was, it was all going into the, uh, the pot, but absolutely. So yeah. So once you, I mean, you fell in love with, with the craft. Um, I just wrote a, uh, an article that's going to be in the new uh, SCORE magazine. It was, it was focused on mentorship and, mm. and having a mentor and guiding kind of uh, young people into this field. Um, I've interviewed a lot of uh, young composers who are working with big-name composers, and I know you per pursued an education in music, and you're very big with education through music, the organization. Yep, definitely. And you're very kind of a, a champion for that. So I want to talk, talk about kind of who are your kind of mentors growing up, and how did they kind of guide you into what you have as a career now. Yeah, I've been lucky. I, I, I've had a handful of really amazing teachers. The first, that piano teacher I mentioned, yeah. you know, he was so supportive and 
in, I didn't really, he, he never stopped being my piano teacher, even though my piano lessons were very focused on the idea of how to use this tool to compose. Right. Um, so I'm a garbage pianist <laughs> as a result, but it's not his fault. Yeah. Uh, it's just that I was not interested in putting in the hours necessary to develop the technique. Um, but he was instrumental. And, and then in, in high school, um, my high school orchestra teacher, I, I started to notice on all the soundtrack albums that I was voraciously collecting that quite a few of them said composed and conducted by. Mm. And that intrigued me. I didn't know much about that. And so first week of freshman year in high school, I'm 14 or whatever, I went marching into the student orchestra and said to the teacher, I want to learn to conduct and I want to write music for the orchestra. And to their credit is a guy named Dan Levitt. He basically just gave me the keys and said, have at it. So for four years, almost every day, I had the chance to conduct my high school orchestra and put sheet music in front of them wow. and hear it back. And so, and this was long before I ever started exploring the idea of mock-ups or, or electronics in any fashion. I, mm -hmm. I initially would write by hand and then he would let me use the teacher's lounge to Xerox the parts mm -hmm. in order to put them out in front of the orchestra. And that's how I first learned. So I was insanely lucky because it's not like I was growing up in an era before notation software or before mock-ups in Logic and Digital Performer and all that. that those programs existed. I just was oblivious yeah. to them. Um, and so I was very lucky that my education was hearing an orchestra actually play it and learning my mistakes in the room. Mm. Um, it's a terrifying way to learn because <laughs> when 30 of your classmates and high school kids are not exactly known to be the most charitable, uh, <laughs> when they see you making a mistake, you know, you never forget it. Yeah. So I was able yeah. to get this wonderful and very deeply embedded education um, and I owe that, that teacher, that teacher Dan Levitt was so giving of the orchestra's time. Yeah. Um, and, and then I also in parallel had, you know, music, a music theory teacher that was very encouraging and he taught the choir and he also let me write for the choir and, and he's like this legend where we had this nationally acclaimed choral program in this high school. It's a public high school, but mm -hmm. one of the top ranked choral choirs every year wow. for like 30 years and mostly because of this guy. And so... It was basically like having a professional choir sing your stuff for you. It was crazy. Um, very, very lucky. That's amazing. Um, and then, yeah, when I went off to school, I eventually wound up at USC and um, crossed paths with Chris Young, and he's usually oh, the one God, that yeah. I kind of point to as, of all the composers in the business, he's the closest I've ever had to a mentor. Um, I very briefly... I didn't really work for him, but he was scoring Spider-Man 3 when I was there. Mm. And so he needed, it was kind of all hands on deck. He needed yeah, yeah, everybody yeah. who was willing to, <laughs> to, to participate. And so I, I did kind of almost like an internship very briefly with him. But he was one of those where he was like, let's go to lunch and then you just tell me how I can help. And that's wow. the kind of conversations that he would have. You know, he what do you need? Do you need money? <laughs> do you need advice? Do you need directions somewhere? Do you need an introduction to somebody? That's just, so it, it's not mentorship in the sense of like, I was going there for six months and yeah. watching him work or something like that. But it was more like, how can I support your ambition because I want you to be successful? And, um, and what I love is that I'm, I, I was not unique in that treatment. He is like that to oh, hundreds of composers. He's one of the kindest people, I mean, you know, ever. He's yeah. like pathologically obsessed with helping yeah. the young. 
Uh, I see him at signings, and he's giving out his phone number to yeah. young composers who just met him. You know, it's it's just the act of charity, and the act of I mean, it's, it's amazing. Yeah, and he's done that from the beginning. I remember we honored him at ETMLA a few years ago, and I I, I was you. I filmed the interviews with the composers. Uh, I, I thought for the video we show at the gala, it would be cool to go to a bunch of composers who were his students and have since become successful. Mm. So. Went to Marco's place, went to Chris Speck's place, you know, talked to Debbie Lurie and Gerard Marino and uh, a handful of folks. And I remember Chris, specifically Chris Beck, saying that, you know, on the first day of class, Chris put his phone number up on the chalkboard and he was like this A-list composer. And everybody was going, you know, that's his number? And he's like, please don't hesitate to call. And this is Chris talking. So this was, this yeah. was 10 or 15 years before my time. And Chris was, you know much earlier in his career. I mean, yeah. he was not a, a kid. I mean, his oh, yeah. career had begun in the 80s, but but still, that early on to just be like, you know, help, yeah. I'm here. It's, it's amazing. That's absolutely. And um, of course, you've gone to, I mean, your career has grown. You really started off scoring shorts and kind of into features. And then I think... Uh, gazillions of indie films gazillion. that no one's ever seen. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you've amassed such a, you know, kind of your craft kind of early on. I think, of course, the one, I think, project that everyone saw you kind of launch into your lives was Journey, and that was a, kind of a big moment in your career. Oh, without um, a doubt. And looking back at that, I know we talked about it last time, but it's, you know, you've, you've had so much distance from it now, but it's still such this, this kind of entity that's out there, the music, the game, and it's, was, you know, shaping what gaming was, kind of these indie games kind of coming now. Um, talk about, what do you remember from Journey and the impact it had on you? Oh, I mean, that impact is still daily. I mean, it's, 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 it's quite literally people, um, it's surreal. It's one of those that I, I, um, when it first started to take off and the game, you know, before it launched and the review embargo lifted and mm -hmm. we were in that little window where you could read the reviews, but the game hadn't come out yet. And it was just like one after another saying, this game is a revelation, you know, 10 yeah. out of 10, blah, 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 blah. and, um, and reading all of that and thinking, really? Because I remember we were we worked so hard. It was three years, yeah. killing ourselves. Uh, and 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 I I had the least of it. I mean, the, the the core development team, they they really put it all on the line. I mean, they bankrupted their their company, uh, yeah. getting this thing finished. And so, they all sacrificed enormously. And I remember thinking, by the time it shipped, this it represents what we all aspired to make. It was one of those rare examples where because we had so much time, which was not the plan, it was a lot of begging for schedule extensions, yeah, yeah. but by the end of it, we, it was three years to make like a 90 minute game, which is very um, atypical, especially back then, it was unheard of. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And so Sony was you know, not spending a huge amount of money, but they were gargantuanly over budget and not happy. And so they made this deal where they said, we'll tell you what, we'll let you finish and keep working. We're not gonna cancel the game and just cut our losses, but we're also not gonna pay for this anymore. Mm. So you're on your own, for the next few months to just make, and that's how they, they bankrupted the company because they basically took whatever little savings was left and, yeah. and most of the senior folks took no money for, for months and wow. it was crazy. And so, um, but as a result, when, you know, it's like you hit the button for the submit, the submit to certification, everybody felt like, you know, there's a million little nitpicks, but this does represent what we wanted it to be, at least as close as we know how to do. Yeah. And so everybody felt good about that. The, the question was, is anybody else going to be interested? Right. Will this matter to anybody in the world? Or is it just like our own little 
kind of experiment that we entertained ourselves with and will live in obscurity forever. And right. so it was so shocking, and still to this day, seven years later, surreal to me that so many people responded to it to the, to the extent that they did. And, yeah. and the fact that the score, you know, there's no dialogue and the no. sound design is largely quite subtle and, and, and kind of sleight of hand in nature because the, the sound design is actually quite complex, but most of it sits behind the score. The score, yeah. we kind of, we called the score the narrator. And so um, I was in this unusual position where people were just constantly talking about the music because it's like this in the experience. <laughs> I mean, how could they not? It would be yeah. like if you see, you know, a movie with, Patrick Stewart, you're not going to not notice the acting because yeah. it's just it's it, he's just got that gravitas, you know. And and I'm not trying to make a comparison, but it's just I was in this position where I was slid out in front of the audience and held up for them yeah. because of the nature of the design. Yeah. And I was just lucky; I didn't ask for that. I was just scoring the game, and then at some point realized like I'm very nakedly on display here. Yeah. Uh, but as a result, you know, it, it became one of those things that that people talked about. Um, and I was I was terrified because I thought, man, I'm gonna I actually could be the decisive thing that ruins this game. And that's not like composer humbleness or or humility. That is accurate. That's literally yeah. true. If the score is terrible, it could drag down the game because there isn't a whole lot to this game. Like all the ingredients are this balancing act with each yeah, other. So yeah. it was it was very nerve wracking. And then when the reviews started to come out, it was like they overshot the expectations so dramatically that I just thought, really. And then to get all this attention, I mean, still to this day, I, I mean, literally people will like mail me, like someone says like, can I mail you an album and you sign it and mail it back or whatever. Some guy, some guy just sent this. I know I'm veering off camera no, here. That's good. Some guy um, messages me this beautiful heartfelt message. I haven't even opened this yet. We're gonna, this, yeah, is, this is now an unboxing video. An unboxing video. Um, I need a blade. Uh, this guy sends me this beautiful, heartfelt message about um, his wife has been fighting cancer, and she's fine now. Um, but um, but sh but for their anniversary, um, he wanted to give her I probably am inaudible while I'm doing this. Um, for their anniversary, he wanted to give her um, the Journey vinyl. So he ordered it and then said, you know, can, can I mail you this um, to sign and send back to her? And as someone who has dealt with a fair number of people in my life who struggled with cancer, I thought it's the least I could do, you know? So he mails me this, this, this package, you know, saying like, please, 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 I'll pay for everything. So sweet. And it's like, yeah. this is just last week. You know, I mean, it's it's so. Anyway, that might all be totally unusable because it's like <laughs> sound, but uh, it's 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 every one of these messages. I I always you know I spend an enormous amount of time with my email every day because I because I don't like not not that I get you know million messages like this daily or anything like that, but I I it takes me like an hour to write back because I I want them to realize how much this affects me. Yeah, that you don't ever. At least I can't fathom thinking like, oh, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it to me, it's shocking. People care that much about something that was not designed to be cared about like that. You know, it's one thing if you're putting out an album, if you're Beyonce and you're like, the album is the thing. Yeah. So if people yeah. love it, you're like, oh, thank God. Right. You know, that's more like being the game developer. Yeah. They're, the game is the thing. 
So for this, it would be like obsessing over the cinematography of a movie and being like, I have a production still. Can you send, and like, that's abnormal behavior. It's not, there's, I'm sure there's people like that. And, yeah, that, and, yeah. and I'm sure when a cinematographer gets a letter like that, they're, they're shocked and, 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 and moved. And it's how I feel. It, it's, it's, I feel so lucky because I don't expect this to ever happen again. Journey is this, this perfect storm type situation. And, um, and if it never happens again, that's okay. Like I, I feel so lucky that it happened even once. There's plenty of composers I know that by every measure are wildly successful mm -hmm. who have not had that experience. Yeah. And I, I wish that they could because it's, it's so strange. Um, but it's, it's so meaningful to know that you're able to kind of help people. I get, I get the most common one is tweets from students saying, um, the Journey soundtrack is like got me through my term paper this year or got me through my, my master's thesis research or whatever. It's hilarious. A lot of people, they, they consider it the highest compliment that they're like, I love to just throw it on and then go do something. Yeah. Which of course is, it took me a long time to hear that as a compliment. <laughs> right. Because I was like, like attention to the music. Yeah. <laughs> I thought, I, well, and I can't relate to that. I've never yeah. been able to do that. I can't multitask with music. I don't even like talking to someone in the car while the radio's on because I, I keep getting derailed zeroing in on what's on the score on the on yeah. the on the speakers so I, I use it to write but i use it to like yeah, I'll, i can't I'll, imagine but I'll, I'll use it like if i'm um need to get into a mood or a certain state of mind i'll listen to it but then i'll pause and then write i can't like because I'm oh yeah, yeah sure well yeah, that yeah, yeah. yeah that maybe i can understand because yeah. it sort of stimulates your imagination right. and then you sort of absorb that hit pause yeah yeah that i can relate to quite a lot actually but but yeah so the whole idea of students using it as a study aid. There was actually an article on like, I can't remember now, which it was one of the gaming sites, I believe, that they did a, they did a, um, a list of like the top albums to, to study to. It was a very obscure, bizarre, but they put Journey as number one. And I remember reading that and being like, really? But then, but then later realizing that like, wow, to, to be there in a way that's helpful to people, yeah. to, that's useful to them, it's amazing. Like I, I love that. I mean, it's got me thinking all the time now. Like I wonder if I were to make albums for that purpose, just as a side project for fun. You know, just like yeah. an album that's designed around, even to the degree of like getting together with researchers and talking about, you know, the latest and sort of the neuroscience of focus and flow states and those sorts yeah. of things. And saying, can we design an album that's actually optimized for this? Um, that's a, that's an amazing point because. Um, I mean, I was even contemplating even just as a film music media thing, like a side thing of like having themed playlists, almost like right driving playlist or workout playlist or relaxing after work playlist. The workout playlist is going to be all like Brian Tyler, Hans Zimmer, and, Steve yeah, Blonsky. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you just need Transformers, The Rock, and like Iron Man three, and you're good. but um, but like something like that where I know Max Richter had his big sleep thing, right. where you it's like a whole experience. It's, it's like a whole, a whole day. Exactly, and I mean, I, I love that idea of like creating an album like this is great for studying or this is great for uh, de-stressing or something like that. That's it was, I mean, it's in a way that's where the Western classical tradition began because music was initially liturgical. It was all mm. about in service of biblical texts. Mm. The music was not there to be this thing in and of itself. It was a way to deepen the, the, the like parish and their ability to relate to these texts. You know, yeah, if yeah, you yeah. hear like, if you hear... Um, you know, amplius lava mea inquitate mea, uh, those words, you know, wash me of my iniquities, 
That sounds very clinical, but as soon as you have a composer like Gregorio Allegri writing his Miserere Mei Deus and infusing it with this insane amount of beautiful emotion, it's like, now I'm saying, cleanse my soul in a way that yeah. somehow transcends what those words mean. So music was always, or you think of like Greek choruses or something, yeah, and yeah. M m music was initially always a utilitarian way to augment something else, in, and usually storytelling of some kind. Right. So yeah, the idea of music for use um, uh, is, is actually kind of going back to the origins of music itself. Wow, yeah. And I, I like that, I like, it's part of the appeal of film music and video game music obviously, but, but the idea of saying, well, how can we, we can go further into somebody's life, like, you know, a workout album. Yeah, not, not from, not taken from anything else, designed it's to help that. you work out better or get in the mood better. I think that's, that's yeah. a fancy, I think there's something there. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I know that there's, you know, there's people, I mean, obviously there's piles and piles of meditation albums. Exactly, um, yeah, yeah. That are already out there. And, and um, my struggle was always, I would listen to those and I'd go, my God, they're so boring. Um, <laughs> but that's, Proof that I'm not using it. How it's it's not meant to be listened to in that way. Exactly. And it's like I'm, I've I've missed the point. It's so you're it's looking so funny. for the narrative in it or something. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. There's no theme in development here. It's very unmemorable. Um, was Journey your first video game? No, it was my. I did a couple student projects okay. while I was at USC. One of which led to a student project called Flow. Oh, that's and right. Flow okay. began. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah, Flow was like a student. It was Genova Chen, the founder, the co-founder of that game company. His master's thesis right. was Flow, and then Sony signed him to a multi-game deal, and where Flow was to be the first game where we remade it as a PS3. It was actually a PS3 launch title initially, because mm -hmm. this was right at the switch to PS3 from PS2, 2006. And so I got to work on Flow. I, I consider, even though I did those student games, Flow was my first. It's my first commercial release of any kind. I, right. I had done three or four indie features by that point, which I don't think any had actually gotten distribution yet. They were all just kind of in the festival world. Right. So um, Flow was my first true game and also first proper commercial release period. Absolutely. And then that led years later to, to Journey. Um, so Journey is sort of my second uh, commercially released game, but I was also working at the same time as Journey on a game called Monaco, which came out right oh, after that. Right. So I had signed on to Monaco before Journey shipped, but it came out and was able to kind of benefit from the release of mm. Journey, even though that was never on purpose. Yeah, planned. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You've made such a mark in the video game world uh, with your career. Um, uh, and we're, we're, we're leading up to Erica, but I do want to touch, uh, last time I think I was here, you were finishing up either, I think Banner Saga 2, but I think you finished, mm. you finished the third one, and I thought it was such a special series. I mean, that having a trilogy oh, and having to complete, you know, being able to do all three of them and bring a story to a close, I thought, I wonder if you could reflect back on that experience and finishing that saga. Yeah, the, the Banner Saga was very, very lucky because not only was I there from the beginning and, you know, sort of de facto just assumed to, to be involved uh, on the whole thing, um, that, that fortunately blessedly was never in doubt, uh, but um, on top of that, they knew from the start that their ambition was to make a trilogy, and they had mm. kind of the bullet points of what everything you know, to come would be, right. and also, more importantly, where the characters are supposed to go. So in our very first ever meeting, they walked me through the whole trilogy. And so all the themes and everything that I was writing 
we're with the foresight of where this needs to go, where this needs to end up. And that's crazy lucky because it's, because it, I love that. I'm a big nerd for like the lore and the, yeah, the world yeah. building and all that as a fan of, you know, these big, especially kind of fantasy, you know, Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings, mm -hmm. all that sort of stuff. I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of, of the nitty gritty of what makes that world that world. And these guys are, are like that. So they were constructing something of that depth and it was like, give me the download. And then when I started to realize by the end of Banner Saga 3, this all is basically a love story. It's this kind of star-crossed, cursed love story, but you don't even get the first hints of that until the Banner Saga 2. So the first game doesn't even really tell you where this whole thing is going. Mm. Uh, and it just is giving you the immediate impact of this sort of Ragnarok apocalyptic scenario that the characters are in. Yeah. And so I, I was so enabled to make sure that the themes knew where things were headed and I could kind of plant seeds where I knew this is not going to pay off until like four years from now when hopefully we're working on the third game because everything was contingent on the sales of the game. It's not like they had a budget for a trilogy lined up. It was like, we make two if number one is successful and we make three if number two is successful. Exactly. Yeah. And so it was never a sure thing. So yeah, and they were also just the best people to work with because their whole attitude is we choose the composer and and then turn them loose. Yeah, the idea amazing. is not to micromanage. They don't have time. It's not a big team. The games are hugely ambitious for how crazy yeah. skeletal the team. I mean, Journey had a bigger team, and Journey is not a small is not a big team either. <laughs> so it was like the beginning of the first Banner Saga was basically five of us. Wow. I mean, it's it's not these are tiny tiny groups. Even though they were able to throw a lot of resources at it, we were able to record you know big sort of grandiose orchestral recordings on all three games, uh, they, that just is a testament to them giving me a disproportional outsized sliver of their budget than mm -hmm. I would normally be given or any composer would normally be given. So it was all just so lucky. They, they were so hands-off creatively and so all about just have fun. And, and if you think it's right, we, we, mm -hmm. we trust you. you know, we're, and I can't honestly recall getting any particular feedback or notes on any cue in all three games. I really have no, because I, I, I was, I would beat up the music myself. Yeah. By the time it came out of my sort of grist mill of trial and error and, you know, lots of finessing and, because mm -hmm. I would play the game a ton. That was the thing. They would say like, let's just, you know, get the music in the game and mm -hmm. then we'll, we'll play together and then whatever feedback you absorb from feeling it in context, go off and implement that and we trust you. Wow. So I played a ton, the first game, well over 200 hours before it shipped, like, because they, they were pushing the build through Steam so I could actually see the literal number and it was over 200 hours. Wow. And so I did a huge amount of rewriting, but it wasn't notes, it was like, oh, I can do this better because I understand the game a little bit better now because I just played it for another 10 hours. Exactly, yeah. Um, so yeah, it was a dream, dream, dream. Everything. That's yeah. I mean, you, you're not going to probably encounter that. No notes. No, <laughs> like. And I, I like notes. That's the thing. Yeah, yeah, like, I'm I feel always, like it would be a constructive thing to have. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I like when people push you. You know, like like a good. I can't remember if we talked about this last time or not, but Assassin's Creed Syndicate was one of those where I was brought in, and they really wanted to change the sort of Assassin's Creed formula a bit, mm -hmm. vary yeah. up the aesthetic. You know, try to see if they could. Um, 
find a new way of expressing, because it's very much a sequel of a large franchise, and so they said, you know, we have a lot of continuity to maintain, but at the same time, we're going to try to carve out our own little space. Can you give us something unexpected? And so we concocted this kind of chamber music vibe, uh, but I remember I was doing this very kind of elaborate, you know, counterpoint-driven, pretty dissonant, almost Bartok-ish um, combat music, and they played it, and they said, this is so cool musically, but it's so stressful to play with this music. What else you got in mind? And that's when I started thinking about the idea that, well, these characters are so sarcastic and they're so good, they never feel like they're in danger. What if I started scoring the combat as these waltzes? Mm -hmm. And so then I went back to them and said, okay, left field suggestion. What do you think about waltz? And they were like, oh my God, that's great. Go with that. So. We ended up at like, and that ended up being the defining characteristic of that wow. score. Yeah. And so it was like, we, I would never have thought of that if I hadn't gotten the notes that the initial approach was somehow not right. right. And it wasn't that they didn't like the music. It was just that it wasn't gelling with the gameplay exactly. the way they wanted it to. Yeah. So it was one of those examples where the note, the note made it what it was. And I was like, for, especially when I hear composers complaining about, you know, oh, the director, this and that. I'm like, they make us better. Mm -hmm. You know, we're on a team here. Yeah, yeah. Like, we, and we can make them better, too. Like, it, there's there's that beautiful push and pull, so. I've heard examples of, of composers and even music kind of shifting a director's point of view or, or changing. It can happen. Yeah, it, it can happen. It's rare, but it can happen. Usually the reason it's rare is not their openness. It's it, because in the case of a film, you've, you're, you're, you're stepping onto a platform the foundation of which is so so solidified yeah, yeah. that there's not much you can do that wouldn't entail taking a, a sledgehammer and cracking it down to the foundation. Exactly, yeah. Games, very often you have a longer runway, and games are also more facile late in the process than films are. Right. Because they don't have this delineation of pre-production, production, post-production post in quite the same way. It depends mm -hmm. on the game. Right. Um, but a game like Banner Saga actually is a good example where they chose not, partly due to budget, they chose not to voice the majority of the game. It's, it's mostly text-based storytelling. Yeah. The massive advantage of which is that they can be rewriting major scenes and changing characters up until the day before the launch. Exactly, because yeah. propagating new text into the build is nothing. Right. You know, recording new actors, and all, that boxes you in. And then especially if you're talking about a game like The Last of Us or something, or, or Assassin's Creed Syndicate, where they're motion capturing all those actors, then you are much more like a movie. You're 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 stuck in yeah. in in what you're doing. But um, in a game like the Banner Saga, I was able to talk with the writer and have conversations about you know diegetic music and what if we make these characters like this and like that and 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 alter the script and then say I'd love for this lyric to be like a phrase they all know. So wow. you know the 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 it he would write it into the dialogue you know, kind of like saying, c'est la vie, like little things yeah. like that that could then be set to music where we could ride that right to the end. Wow. That's a huge advantage. So I think that most good filmmakers are totally into that. It's just not feasible. It's not practical. Um, and I've obviously, there's nothing you can do about that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, another amazing project um, that you did since last time we spoke was, of course, A Light in the Void which uh -huh. was, you know, another unique project. Talking about unique projects, you know, we're going to be talking about... The director about. on that was the worst. <laughs> uh, with Tony Lund. Um, and, uh, well, I guess, I guess, yeah, I guess, I guess, I was, I was, we kind of co-directed, but if he's, if we're going to call him the director, then actually he's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, you created a new experience utilizing music, for, uh, you know, with presentations and clips and, and, and presenting, you know, 
scientific data and presented to, to, to audiences. Um, where did the seed of that idea come from and why did that need to, I guess, why did you want to do that? Yeah. Yeah, Light in the Void, it's very kind of you to ask about it. Light in the Void damn near killed me. Um, it, it was, but it's one of the best experiences I've, I've ever had. Um, you, did the, I, you did the whole Kickstarter, it was a Kickstarter, Indiegogo, whatever, you, you were yeah. raising funds and everything, you did the whole and We went all out because it was, it was one of those where, the, I'll, I'll, I'll tell the short version of the story, but I, science has always been my second place passion to, mm. to music. I mean, it was one of those, in some alternate universe, I went off and became a physicist or something. Um... But I, so, so, you know, like when I was a teenager, I wrote a, a three movement symphony called Spirit of the Cosmos, mm. where it wasn't just a, an attempt at musical um, um, sort of uh, astronomy porn. It, yeah. Like it, it wasn't actually funny enough, that orchestra teacher I mentioned earlier, he put it as a challenge. He said, what if you were to write a companion piece to um, host the planets? But of course, I immediately was like, well, First off, the planets is not about the planets. It's about mythology, like Mars, bringer of war, mm -hmm. you know, Jupiter, the, the jolly. Uh, the, the, these are not planets he's describing. Yeah. Um, and uh, Mercury, the winged messenger, like th that's clearly drawing inspiration from the mythological origins of these planets' names. Um, and I said, I think it would actually be cool to write a, a, a sciency, a sciency symphonic piece so my spirit of the cosmos you know it, it's not a good piece. i was a teenager it's terrible um but it i did things like the phrase lengths i was very inspired by carl sagan's book contact where they're getting this pulsed message and then they realize it's just a, an iteration of the prime numbers which was a brilliant idea of if you wanted to communicate we are not a random pulsar we are an intelligence you choose something that would be completely and totally universal well prime numbers are universal of course it's kind of assuming base 10 mathematics, but still, it's a great idea. And so mm. that Spirit of the Cosmos was, you know, like the phrases unfold in, in um, prime number lengths, you know, up to a certain point and then shrink down again. So like the first melody is one bar, then the second melody is, is two bars and then three and then five and then seven, mm. um, that kind of thing. And, yeah. and so um, it's, it's, it's very nerdy, in other words, because uh, this was always a big passion. So I always wanted to circle back to the idea of science and music. And a few years ago, I did a, a friend of mine, someone from high school that I reconnected with many years afterward. He was living in Pasadena. He was, he was getting his doctorate at the time in astrobiology. Wow. He was embedded in the Curiosity Mars rover team and doing all their official write-ups for Wired magazine as a science journalist sort of side gig. And so he was like in that famous footage of everybody high-fiving each other when it landed. Wow. Uh, he was in the room, you know, that kind of thing. And so we reconnected and I said, oh, I want to hear all about it. And then I thought, I want to do a love letter to Curiosity. And I just thought it was the most inspiring feat of robotics and science and engineering and technology. Yeah, yeah. And so we convinced uh, NASA slash Caltech, where the Curiosity mission is based, to give us a little bit of money. And we co-wrote and co-directed a short film called Our Curiosity. It's on YouTube now where I wrote the score first, and then we constructed the imagery around it, and, and we hired um, Neil deGrasse Tyson to narrate it, flew to New York and directed his voiceover. Wow. And, and so it's, it's only five, six minutes. Actually, Neil deGrasse Tyson and Felicia Day co-narrating, which was really oh, fun. Yeah, Felicia, that's amazing. <laughs> um, yeah, she, we actually recorded her in this room. And um, so, um, so it was, that was my first taste of like music in service of science. Mm. And we recorded the score in Nashville and, and had just an amazing time of it. And so a couple of years later, I was doing a concert 
actually performing the Banner Saga in concert with the Colorado Symphony. And they said, uh, if we were to just give you a slot on our season to do anything, design a concert, you know, build a playlist of your favorite soundtracks, or what would you do? Like, if we just gave you a blank slate where it's like, you have this date, you have rehearsals, you have a box office, you have, you know, our marketing, but you have to provide the show, what would it do? What would it be? And I said, science and music. Nothing to do with film, video games, and any of that. I want to do a whole show, a two-hour show about science where it's all about communicating Im the emotion that, at least that I feel, and that I think a lot of other people feel, about science that makes it disarming and makes it less academic and makes it more about the awe and wonder of it all. Yeah. And right there on the spot, they were like, okay, done, just tell us when it can be ready. This complete just backstage, the, con the orchestra was playing, you know, I was off stage and the other conductor yeah. was out there. <laughs> And they said, you know, when can you have it for us? And so it took like four years. And, and about halfway through that four wow. years, um, I, w I did Abzu. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. Or it, it came out. Abzu had begun much earlier. But it shipped, and I did a little radio interview. And a friend of mine, who I hadn't seen in years, hers, hears me on the radio and texts me and goes, hey, I just heard you talking about that new game. We should catch up. Well, this is Tony Lund. And he was like this Emmy-nominated writer-director of... Through the wormhole with Morgan Freeman, oh, okay. um, yeah. which he had tried to get me on as the composer for, and it was the first time I ever lost to Hans. Uh, <laughs> first and one of the only times that's ever happened, because I remember him emailing me going, um, "Well, I have a new career milestone for you," because uh, this was ten years ago, you know. Right. Yeah. And it was actually very like, "Holy shit, this is a this is a real show." I didn't realize how big it would become. Yeah. yeah. Um, and um, so I said, I, it suddenly clicked why it was taking me so long to make this show is I needed a partner. And Tony's, he got like a minor in physics and a, and a major at USC in, in filmmaking. Wow. So he's like, the, he's the perfect person the for perfect shows like person. Through the Wormhole, but yeah. he also, he's a big musical theater nut. He's a soundtrack nerd. He's all the things that would be a dream partner. Right. And so it was like, can you get together tonight for dinner? After his little just random text, I heard you on the radio. So it was like, sure. So he comes over the restaurant right on the other side of this wall, and I said, I have this idea, but it's raw clay. You know, let me just vomit all of it out to you. And so he sat there and just listened while I went on for about the same amount of time. It was like two hours. Uh, <laughs> and, I, and I was, you know, and I showed him the Curiosity Rover thing, and, and, um, and he just was like, okay, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go and digest, and I'll call you whenever I'm ready to call you back. And then like two days later, maybe, he calls me and says, can you come over? I go over, he pours me some scotch, puts the bottle on the table, and then like dramatically reveals this white erase board where he had mapped out this whole re-envisioning of the idea. Wow. And there was no title for it yet. We didn't know what to call it. But he was like, this needs to be a narrative. Don't just make it, you know, a, it, it shouldn't just be a science, a science review or, yeah. you know, like a variety hour of music and science. He's like, this needs to follow a through line. And so we then began this conversation. I remember I left at like four in the morning bottle made it all the way to the bottom <laughs> and uh, but we were firing on all cylinders all the, so then like two full more years of that was when it finally uh premiered and um yeah october of of last year 2018 yeah that's nice and so yeah it, it ended up being you know three prominent scientists giving ted talk style presentations of their work um where it's like 20 minutes where it's all written you know beat by beat by beat, tightly scripted as if you were scoring dialogue from a film. Yeah. So, but where you're co-authoring the film. So they would make a point and then I would say, 
Now wait, and I'd let the orchestra, you know, digest that earth-shattering point they just made yeah. for 20 seconds, settle back down. Uh, but then there's also a theater component to it where the scientists are positioned almost as if they are visions in this parable of a young girl trying to figure out how to grow this fire. And she can't figure out why the fire won't grow. And the big idea with the show is it starts off like, oh, this is going to be very PBS, LeVar Burton. Um, the more she learns, the bigger the, the, the fire grows. You know, scientist comes out, she's struggling, the scientist leaves, the fire grows. And it's like, okay, yes, I get this. And then uh, what happens is someone comes out, a snake oil salesman comes out and convinces her to extinguish the fire. There's a whole bunch of narrative beats I'm skipping. But then when the fire is dead, she basically tries to uh, expound upon her scientific knowledge and it doesn't work. And then finally the last scientist, uh, Carolyn Porco from the Cassini mission, uh, comes out and the big epiphany for our actress, uh, uh, Hannah Hayes from The Last of Us, uh, <laughs> is that th it's never knowledge that makes the thing grow. It's the lack of knowledge. And the, the th little tagline of the show becomes, the three most beautiful words anybody has ever said are, I don't know. That's what science is actually all about. That, yeah. it's, not, it's not a, look at all this cool shit we learned. It's a call to adventure to go learn that cool right. shit. Exactly. That's what the show is supposed to take you away from, take, take you away with. You're, you watch it and think, I've never been more excited by my own ignorance. So that, that was the, the and, and Tony was, you know, he was a dream. I mean, it's very much half and half, the two of us, but I yeah. would credit him as the writer as much as we, workshopped it all together and, and so much of that was his idea and so yeah it was crazy it it, it almost killed me but it was it was just so it was worth doing so and fun yeah, and so. so now we're in the process of working with uh, cami with columbia artists to try and and uh, get it going with other orchestras that'd be amazing and we recorded yeah. the whole thing we have this amazing multi-camera shoot video that we've been sending to our kickstarter backers and it, it yeah it was crazy i could keep going on and on about it but in theory in theory we talk about film and video games on this channel, uh, but it's very kind of you to ask because it was oh, like yeah, the yeah. most overblown passion project. Uh, you know, just and we hemorrhaged everything. Tony and I both basically emptied our life savings into producing it as crazily as we could. You know, just bunch of big orchestra, crazy lasers and fog machines, and you know, flying in scientists from all over the world. And yeah. and, and these are not trivial scientists. Like we had Maria Spiripula, who was one of the lead experiment designers of the Large Hadron Collider. Like one of the major breakthroughs in physics of the last 20 years was the confirmation of the Higgs boson particle, which is basically how yeah. matter has mass. It's, it's related to like why matter is. Exactly, and she was yeah. on that team. Wow. Like, and you know, her friends are people like Elon Musk and the Nolans and stuff. And she's just at the absolute pinnacle of, of the scientific community. And so she, she was one of the three, you know I mean? So it was a big investment, almost killed <laughs> us, but, um, but that we wanted it to be, we didn't want the Bill Nye's like we, all respect to Bill Nye, but he's not, he's a communicator. He's not a scientist himself. We wanted this right. to be straight from the horse's mouth. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. people on the front lines of knowledge. And somehow we got three like rock stars in that department. Uh, so yeah, anyway, yeah. it was, it was crazy. Well, it was I mean, life changing. I still have the scars from it, but it was, <laughs> it was, it was truly uh, very lucky. But speaking of unique projects, um, let's dive right into Erica, um, which is your newest, uh, your newest project. Uh, this kind of new way of interactive storytelling. Um, it's, it's, would you describe this as a game? Would you describe this as a film? What would you describe? How would you describe this? Definitely a game. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't hurt 
my conviction that it's coming out initially on PlayStation. Mm. Uh, so, but conceptually, it's also a game. Like you could yeah. you could put Bandersnatch on PlayStation if you wanted, uh, but I would still call that an interactive film. Which is the the Black Mirror. Black Mirror's FDM. yeah, sort of token uh, experiment along these lines. Ironically, we had begun on Erica like four years ago. Yeah. And so when that came out, it was like, well, this is this is probably going to help us because it's going to plant that seed with people. Yeah. But there was also this initial like, ooh, I hope oh, that didn't crap. steal our thunder. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, I know that I know that very much both of those emotions were felt. In the end, I, I think it will serve us because it's very different. Um, right. But they both have a similar, I think, philosophical aim. Well, actually, I don't know. I can't speak for the Black Mirror team, but I know that part of the idea with Erica was hopefully, you know, gamers will find it interesting. But it's also, in, in the same way that Journey was about evangelizing to non-gamers and trying mm -hmm. to offer them an experience that might let them appreciate the artistry of games that uh, games like Call of Duty or Assassin's Creed were intimidating, you know, intimidating them and therefore precluding some of that appreciation of, of the artistry. Journey was trying to be like this olive branch to non-gamers to say, Really, there's a lot here. There's a lot to games. That's an amazing yeah. place to, to come play. Um, this is has a similar mindset. Like, there's a lot of people, everybody watches movies. Um, it's not a matter of if, it's just how many. Are you a, a movie buff that watches 10 a week? Or are you someone who it's like an annual thing you do, you know, on Christmas, and but you don't care? Right. But there's, there's almost no one alive that's just, nope, Never. refuse. Yeah. But there's still plenty, in fact, the majority of people who are like that about games, either because they feel intimidated by them, they think that they're somehow a waste of time or trivial or brain rotting or literally like evil, ruining society, causing violence. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so this is a game uh, that is saying, you know, hold that just to beat, take a look, see what you think. Because it's, it's very much um, a, a game built around the language of film. It's it's 100% live action, shot like a movie. It's a very well produced film. It's beautifully shot. The actors are phenomenal. The lead actress in particular, Erica Holly Earl, is her name. She just kills it. Amazing piece of casting, um, and uh, and so uh, we'll see. We'll see uh, how <laughs> how it goes down. But um, I can tell you that. Funny enough, you mentioned it as a new form of storytelling. Ironically, it's actually not. The FMV genre, yeah. the full motion video genre, was tried in the 90s and then rightfully abandoned because they were the worst games. <laughs> but my hypothesis as to why they were is because you basically were combining game designers who didn't understand filmmaking with filmmakers who didn't understand games. So you got this... There's always been that disconnect, I feel like. Uh, oh, this, yeah, very, yeah. very... Few, it's why there's so few good... Video game adaptations. Exactly, there's, yeah. All those are yeah. horrible, and it's yeah. mostly because the filmmakers... They're not really aware of what made the game good right. or compelling to people. And part of the problem is usually what made it compelling to people is in the interaction. So you couldn't ever make a movie out of it. Exactly. It's never, yeah. it's a non-starter. Now there's plenty of games that I think would be a potential exception to this. And let's hope Jordan Vote Roberts gets to make his Metal Gear Solid movie. Because oh yeah. he is a true gamer. Yeah, he knows. And uh, yeah. And so if anybody can do it, I think he can. He, he really understands film and, and games in equal measure. He may even understand games more than film. And if King Kong is any, uh, uh, or Kings of Summer are any uh, uh, testimonies, he obviously knows how to make a good film. Yeah. Um, and so, but he, nonetheless, I've, I've hung out with him and, and his knowledge of, of games and his depth of understanding of games and his curiosity about them and passion for them is immense. So Erica's coming from a lot of the similar headspace. Mm -hmm. Like how do we... 
how do we communicate a passion for games in the language of film and vice versa? Um, and, and I think they did an amazing job. It, it, you know, I play the game and I'm like, this is not a badly made film. Yeah. And this is definitely a game. Like, th and those two things have never coexisted as mm -hmm. far as I'm concerned. So, I mean, talk about the... So, yeah, it is a kind of... You're watching this play out through live action, but it is an interactive game. You're choosing dialogue options. You're choosing paths the character can take. It's, um, I guess, not, I'm not, I don't want to compare it to anything. If any of us played Heavy Rain or something like that, it's kind of similar in that sense, but kind of... Yeah, kind Heavy Rain's actually a good comparison because yeah. it, it, Heavy Rain is a game that doesn't uh, rely on the gamey tropes of, like, extra lives and high scores and how right. good at aiming are you. And, like, it, it is much more filmic, which, of course, for a lot of people was a complaint about it. Exactly. They're like, there's not really a game here. Um, I think Erica won't suffer that because... Uh, I mean, first off, the interactions are highly meaningful. That yeah. you make really major choices that totally alter the trajectory of the game and the story and the character and all that. But also, um, I think we're more forgiving because we're looking at actual filmed actors. Yeah. And so we tend to view it through the lens of a film as opposed to a game, even though mechanically it might be quite similar to something like Heavy Rain. I mm -hmm. think that will go in its favor. Yeah. In a way that it shows an unfair criticism of Heavy Rain if they're, if that's the only difference. Right, right. Uh, but uh, I, n n unfair or not, I, I do think that hopefully that will tilt the scales favorably for Erica. We'll see. Absolutely. I mean, so, I mean, talk about, you know, I guess where do you even start structuring your score? I mean, did you have to wait for them to film everything and show you every little path? Like I can't, I'm just like picturing like the 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 store, like the chalkboard of like all the different paths. Uh, that, it, it, it was like it wasn't even a chalkboard because it, it it looked like in a beautiful mind when he has all the articles and the the, the yarn <laughs> yeah. connecting. That's that's quite literally what their production office looked. I got to visit the set while they were shooting. Because uh, this was one of those where I, I, I was able to give them feedback on their script and everything because I met the developer before they even had the deal with Sony. And it was his first game, but I met him at a bar um, and was like, he showed me he had made a kind of prototype. It was basically mm -hmm. with two scenes where there were some dialogue options and because they, they had developed proprietary tech in order to make everything very seamless. Because they thought, this is a compelling genre, but just nobody's done it right. And part of the reason no one's done it right is because they didn't have the right tech for it. So he and his sort of genius technical director, Pavle, he meaning Jack Atridge, the creative director, started this company called Flavorworks, and they're based in London, they're a British team, and made a little kind of uh, test, a little prototype. Mm. And he just handed it to me, it was on an iPad. And that was always part of the initial conceit was, I want you to feel like you're reaching in and touching the world, the footage itself. It's very tactile. Like yeah. when you play it on PlayStation, you mainly are using the, um, where'd my controller go? Um, DualShock. It's uh, no, that's the um, thing. Your your the PS3. I, where the hell? Oh, I think it's in the other room. Um, <laughs> it has a little touchpad on it. Oh yeah, yeah. And you use that as the that's the, all you use in the game. I mean, you probably can use the sticks. It never even occurred to me to try. Yeah. Because it was always and the, the main thing is they use the what's called PlayLink, which is Sony's um, app that you can download that lets you use your phone in connection with. Yeah, yeah. Because some games have use for your phone. Obviously, a lot of games, it's like Just Dance or something where it wants the accelerometer to know if you're properly getting your John Travolta on. But um, uh, in this case, you can use it because the whole idea is you're supposed to actually, you know, you touch the door, you touch the painting, you touch the line mm. that you want her to say, that kind of thing. Um, and so 
any case, to the question of how it got started, they showed me this. I was completely blown away. I was like, you've cracked the code. This is amazing. I never even thought about full motion video games since I was like a teenager and yeah. like everybody else had ridden it off. Right. And um, so it was like, how do, I, how do I become involved in this? And so we, we began um, uh, just starting to, you know, do the traditional route of like, well, why don't we uh, craft a theme to try to anchor this? And what I also really wanted was to be able to write music to their initial storyboards of how the scenes would work, just because I thought this is going to probably get really complicated. Mm. I want to have as much time as possible to iterate on this and try to get it right. Um, and so they would send me this script and the script, you know, there, there wasn't, I had to get an app to be able to like click through it because it's nonlinear, you know, I mean, mm. it's, it's actually not fair to call it nonlinear. It's just highly branching. Right. It, it is, it it's is linear. linear. Uh, it's the, you're the one who's, Designing the line, I guess. It's, yeah. it's linear in the way that navigating through the tributaries of like Key West, Florida is <laughs> linear. Like there's a gazillion paths. Yeah. And some of them are, are the tiniest decision in the game. I don't want to say any spoilers, but there will be moments in the game where it's seemingly like, do you want to, I'm making this up, but yeah. by comparison, you know, do you want to hold this coffee mug or this cell phone? And it's like, you have no idea as in life how massively divergent the story will become in those moments based on something that minor. Wow. And so as a composer, of course, the only way to really figure out how to score this is to play through it. And, to, and I had their, you know, their script and their flow charts. But even then, it was, they didn't have a good... One of the challenges of it was there was no tech for representing those flow charts and no yeah. one had made like an actual like Excel flow chart of this and this and this. So the only way for me to really truly know everything was to play through it because it, part of it was just their team was small enough that that um, they were all so busy there was no one there to be kind of my liaison to help with that yeah so i mean even even up to like a week before the scoring sessions i'm playing through and i discover something i didn't know was there and i'm like oh my god i need another there's like a whole other two minutes of music that i got to figure out because i realized if i do this and then I do that and then if I had earlier done this one thing now there's a whole scene that plays that I would never have even known about and I didn't know about till today and so it was like just an insane amount of play testing and research and then calling the writer and being like no wait a minute how do I tr the other thing was they gave me the kind of um, debug commands where I could manually go to any scene in the game so okay. I have this huge list but the problem is when you cheat like that you don't know what the prere prerequisites to trigger that scene are. Right, right. And so there'd be one where I'd say, I'm watching a dialogue, I'd call them and say, I'm watching dialogue between this character and this character, and I have no idea how you ever get those two in the room together. And they say, oh, here. And they walk me through the daisy chain that you have to do to get that. And, yeah. and then I say, okay, well, you know, can I, do I score that? Like, is the alternate reality where I'm not in that scene with that character, is the cue going to work and we repurpose it? Or do I need a separate cue? And you can imagine, like, for a game that, has movie length runtime. Yeah. There's like five hours of footage or more. And the score was one of those that there was a, you know, we didn't have an unlimited budget here. And so it was like, I had to be very careful to not just have this runaway freight train of needing 20 hours of music, even right, though the game's right. only 90 minutes. So it was a crazy challenge. I mean, it was just probably the most difficult score I've ever had to deal with. I mean, with. yeah, just to wrap your head, wrap your head around it. Um... It, was, it, was, it, was, it was a nightmare in the way that a great personal trainer is your worst enemy. Yeah. Like, it, you are the better for it, but in the yeah. moment, you're like, I hate you so much right now. <laughs> uh, because, yeah, it was But, I mean, it, it, was it, it must have been an amazing puzzle to crack. I mean, once you got it, was there, like, this... I'm not convinced I ever got it. 
Like, it's one of those that it's just... There was I that could, aha moment, like, I did it. Like Yeah, well, the aha was, like, I'm out of time, and I delivered yeah. all the cues are marked green. Uh, it was it was really hard, you know, and it was one of those... And, and the director was actually not easy, because he was... It was his first game, and he was, uh, like, as creative director, his first game. He's, yeah. he's been in the industry a while, but, in fact, he's been involved in some with some major heavyweights in the British scene. Uh, but this was his first time, and also there's just so much to learn. They were kind of inventing a new genre in many respects. Yeah, yeah. Or at least so thoroughly dusting off an old one as to be effectively reinventing it. And so um, they, they, were, they, were, they had enough challenges of their own, and figuring out just the right tone. And It was one of those, in contrast to stories like the Banner Saga and Journey that I was talking about earlier, I did insane amounts of rewriting on this. And some of it was me saying, I can do this better. Some of it was, you know, the scene would get updated and then now I saw a fresh cut and I realized like, oh, I did it wrong before, but I, I couldn't have known otherwise, but now it just doesn't work anymore. Yeah, yeah. But then also Jack, you know, he was, he was not trivially demanding um, and in good ways, defensible ways, but a challenge for sure. Uh, and I, I love the guy, you know, we're already talking about, you know, the, the thing that's coming next. So there's, a, there, there's, you know, I would do anything for him, but my God, I probably wrote 30 themes before we landed on what is wow. now the main theme. And, and I'm glad because I feel where we ended up was strong, but it was always like this impossible list of it needs to communicate, you know, an innocence and a fragility, but a darkness and a lightness. And, a, and it was like <laughs> trying to trying to thread that needle and yeah. really nail it um, and, um, and explore. You know, his main thing was he just always wanted to make sure there was no stone left unturned. Yeah. It wasn't that he didn't know what he wanted. It just was like, okay, that's cool. Can it be better? There probably is a better one. It was like, oh, okay, yeah, fine. You know what? You're right. So at the time I was kind of miserable um, but I, I owe him my gratitude now. And I've told him all this to his face. Like, you know, this was, this was not easy, uh, yeah. but I would do it all again. That's amazing. Well, uh, I would love to see maybe an example of how you structured yeah, let's do this it. and maybe we can, uh, fire up the computer and see if you can. Yeah. It's fallen asleep. That's how we know I'm rambling a lot. It's <laughs> like, I think the timer on this is six hours. And so, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, well, let's well, do let's, it. Let's wake it up. Yeah. Okay, cool. So here's the theme we ended up with uh, as always, um, Simple is the goal, right? Simple, but not simplistic, you know? Like if your theme is That's not exactly uh, profound. Uh, it is simple, but uh, it's, it's perhaps simplistic. So the goal is always to make something that, that, that can capture the spirit of what you're after um, in as little as possible. Right. So this is where we kind of ended up. to it. It's very kind of gothic, you know? Yeah. Because then you can get very, you know... That sort of, you know, just have fun with it. But, um, 
something very simple and kind of sad. The story involves a girl who's an orphan in her early 20s who has this traumatic memory of discovering her father's murdered body. Mm. And then the very opening of the game, uh, someone mails her a severed hand and the police show up and say, we think this is actually connected to the never solved murder of your father. And she gets pulled into this, this dark world um, as they try to figure out what's going on. And so it has to be like fragile um, and delicate, uh, but, but in a world of kind of intrigue. You know, so that's how we were hoping to, right. to get that across. You know? So, anyway, that's kind of the idea on, uh, on the theme, and hopefully that made some sense. Hopefully that was somewhat interesting. Uh, yeah. look, look under the hood. It's, it's, you know, one of the things that for me was always encouraging, first time I ever kind of got to see this stuff was to realize that some of my favorite music, when peeling back the layers, you realize there was, there, it's not piles and piles of complexity. It always seemed like it ought to be, but then when you actually have a look at it, you think, well, hell, that's not that complicated. Uh, and that was inspiring. It made you realize that it's not about how many notes or something like that. It's, are they the right notes? That's what we're always aspiring to. Well, I mean, Austin, I think it's an amazing endeavor. I think it's a great... <laughs> it's a, well, let's hope. It's very much you. I love hearing your voice and kind of uh, hearing it on you know, center stage. And, and, uh, That's very kind. And, it's, and it is a beautiful theme, and I cannot wait to dive into this game. Yeah, well, I hope people, <laughs> I hope people uh, really enjoy it. I, like I said, it was, it was a very challenging experience, but in the best way, and I'm... And I'm, I'm I'm cautiously proud of the score. I'm not usually uh, preemptively. Kind yeah, of. I'm not usually <laughs> well preemptively or after the fact. Irrespective of any validation from people, uh, I don't uh, tend to pat myself on the back because there's always just a distracting barrage of things that could be better that I wish I had done differently or that I didn't spot, and then I realized oh, that you know even if it's something super technical like oh that voice leading sucks. What the hell was I thinking? I mean, but there's just always a million things, small and big. Yeah that bother you, but I, I am um, reasonably uh, proud, I guess, of this one uh, because I feel like the main goal was how to write the score where if you're a film person who's never played a game, it just feels like you're watching a film mm -hmm. that somehow, magically, you get to influence. Because the thing is, gamers are accustomed, like if I'm playing an action game and there's some, you know, like, you know, Whatever, there's like an action cue going yeah, on. Yeah. Um, it always feels like old-timey silent, <laughs> yeah. silent era when you're, you know, like... The <laughs> uh, uh, piano is not kind uh, as a reductive device for that. But let's say you're in that thing. It's a game. Gamers for 30 years have gotten, in my opinion, far too accustomed to this kind of scenario. You know, whatever, whatever I was playing. Uh, And then, and then you win. Like, even then, I couldn't resist trying to make it slightly more musical because it's, it's you know, the problem is always like... This awkward yeah. cutting in, interjection, interrupting, actually would be more obvious if I made it such a more unrelated key, so we're, you know... 
like, what the hell was that? It's awful. And so I, one of my big quests, and it started with flow, but Journey was like my big, you know, how do I make it so the music is just always seamless? And yeah. if you watch a playback, a, you know, much like I was capturing my screen here, if I capture a playthrough and then watch it as a film, it should be just as elegant and seamless as any good film score. Because you don't do that in a movie. If it's a five-minute yeah. battle scene in, you know, Gladiator, Hans doesn't write a ten-minute battle cue and then just cut wherever the footage happens to stop. Like, but games do that all the time, and, I, yeah. and we've come to accept it as gamers, and it drives me fucking mad. And so I thought with this game, not only does it drive me mad normally, but, but movie people would be like, what the hell was that? The, yeah. the music just cut. Like, because you can't help but compare it to a film while yep. you're playing. Yep. So I thought, we have to be extra obsessive about making sure the music is just in and out seamlessly. You don't ever detect the transitions. You don't ever detect the chip, which is why in the end, it's like 350 cues that are in this crazy, you know, like those, those old fashioned uh, sort of Gene Kelly type <laughs> opening numbers where yeah. there's a thousand dancers all jumping into the pool and yeah, swimmers. Yeah. And uh, it, the score has to be that level of kind of moving parts at any given moment and and I don't know how well um, I succeeded because I can always find ways to break it and I can always find ways to like discover if I do this thing and then that thing and then this thing and then I wait 41 seconds and then I do this thing you can hear the loop or whatever it drives me crazy so hopefully we scrubbed out all the obvious ones um, because there's just so much variability you know one of the rules with the developer was that the game should never feel like you're just checking out watching a movie and mm -hmm. then every now and then going, oh yeah, I have to actually do stuff. So every 10 to 15 seconds is the rule. You have to interact with it in some way so that you never forget that this is a game. Yeah, never place your controller down and start watching. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I think, I think the very longest time you ever go is like a minute and a half and it's like the end. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's very interactive and because all those choices have potentially huge ramifications. They, they, they force the music to change. Well, as a result, the score is, it's like Neo having to dodge these bullets. You know? I'm, I'm all about the weird metaphors right now. It's somehow, it's a Gene Kelly thing, it's Neo thing. Uh, it's, who would have ever found those in the same sentence? I'm, I'm clearly not a healthy man. But uh, in any case, that, uh, that level of complexity, I mean, you play the theme, it, it's very straightforward. This just plays on the menu. You know, this is track one of the album, but the actual in-game score was just a nightmare of, of complexity to, to try to honor mm. film yeah. properly. Right. Um, ironically, far more complicated than any film score in that sense could ever be. I mean, there is no corollary to that in film, obviously. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. yeah, it, that was the big challenge, never mind the creative alignment aspects, but it was that part I love. I love getting in there and getting into Wise and saying, okay, you know, how can we make this just elegant, seamless, spotless? Yeah. Let's hope. That's, I think you've done it. I don't well, <laughs> you tell me. Okay. When you write your non-review, that's right. Uh, you yeah, can my non-reviews. Uh, yes, you can. You can tell me if uh, I have so if many it fans broke. of my non-reviews. Yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. All I wanted was a review of this score on your site. As all this was was one big giant roost to try to get those stars. I'm basically an Uber driver, and. Uh, but oh well. In another I still life. I have plenty of leftover stars that I haven't used yet. So I'll, I'll oh have, yes, I love it. I have a whole bag of them. That so. would be an interesting thing. You can use <laughs> you, on Uber. They give you a lifetime number of stars. They you do. have a, you have a thousand stars. So rate carefully. Yeah. I think that is an interesting. Oh yeah, yeah that'd be good. Interesting yeah. thought. Limited stars. I think I'm gonna make a new company side venture. 
Um, <laughs> well, I mean, Austin, thank you so much for your time this evening, for, for dissecting things with us, and uh, it's always a pleasure. No, thank you. This is a nice, this is a fun way to spend a Sunday night. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, no, it's my pleasure. Truly a privilege to be, when one scrolls through the names and faces on your uh, YouTube channel, it is a humbling thing to be amongst them, so thank you.